0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church This teaching is from the series poems prayers and promises a look at a variety of psalms The psalms are the prayers of God's people encouraging and teaching us how to pray in our day We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today Uh, As you guys know we are continuing in our uh, summer series uh, through some of the psalms, not 150 of them. I thought about taking 119, but (laughs) you didn't want to sit here for that long, and if I can be totally honest, I didn't want to preach for that long either. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There are 150 in the Psalter, uh, and they can usually be broken up into a few different types or categories of psalms. Uh, There are the psalms of thanksgiving, where it's just, greater you, Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in the morning, in the noontime, in the nighttime, and, and, and everything. There are the psalms of lament, where something really bad or sad has happened. And so the psalmist is working through and processing his feelings and his sadness and his emotions toward God, and it ends up coming uh, full circle, usually with praise uh, and extolling God's goodness in the end. There are even imprecatory psalms, which those are the ones that we like to pray against our enemies, right? (laughs) James and John were straight out of the imprecatory psalm playbook. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven on these guys? That would be the New Testament imprecatory psalm, uh, where we ask God to judge his enemies, our enemies, but also his enemies, right? This is an entirely different, the reason I bring that up is because we're talking about an entirely different psalm this morning. We're going to be in Psalm 51. There are only seven psalms out of the 150 that are like Psalm 51. They're called penitential psalms or psalms of penitence or repentance. Uh, And and really, the whole point of that, it sounds self-explanatory. These are where the psalmist is confessing sin before God and asking God for forgiveness and reconciliation and right relationship. Psalm 51 of the seven is by far the most famous of those psalms. It is the most oft-used song during worship or devotion throughout the whole of church history. So when we read through, you'll hear some things, and you'll hear some verses. It's like, we've got a song for that. There's a lot of those. But what it is above everything else is it is the model of confession, of repentance, and of restoration. It is attributed to King David, but it is also representative of humanity. It's a realization of our sin. It's a realization that we are standing before a holy and righteous judge with nowhere to hide. The psalm is broken into three components that we're going to go over this morning. The problem of sin, the solution to sin, and the restoration from sin. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them to Psalm 51. If you have your device, you can open that to Psalm 51. If you don't have a Bible or a device with you, it's going to be up on the screens, and it'll be in your book, uh, booklets as well. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Here now, friends, the word of the only righteous and holy judge, God, your merciful Father. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. May God bless the reading of his holy word. So David has written this psalm, and the very beginning of this psalm shows that he is very, very aware of what his problem is. What his plight is. And his problem very clearly is sin. Now, the little caption that you'll see on the top of Psalm 51 and tradition of the faith historically says that this psalm was written after one of David's most shameful actions of his life. You can find that. We're not going to put all the verses up there uh, this morning. But you can find that in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12 where David was not where he was supposed to be. When the kings were out to war, he was at home. He spotted a woman who was not his wife um, bathing on the rooftop and decided he wanted to have her for himself. She got pregnant. Huge conspiracy covering up. Ends up that the husband of the wife is killed, and David takes the woman to be his wife. And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's chapter 11 in about 100 words. Chapter 12... David is confronted with his sin with a parable from Nathan the prophet. And David gets irate at whoever the guy is who's responsible for this misdeed in this parable. And he's like, that guy should die. And Nathan turns around and said, guess what? It's you. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he writes his confession for all posterity to hear and to see and to understand. Now, we don't have to go very far to put ourselves in that situation. Maybe we didn't do exactly what David did, but everybody's got something that you can think of. I don't need to encourage that. You all, you all have something. I know I have several somethings. That we can place ourselves in this situation. That we can be brought to the fullness of our plight. It is my prayer and my hope that we can always turn to Psalm 51 and we can pray these words and that God will hear them and grant us what is asked. The psalmist appeals initially to God's uh, abundant mercy is what it's called. In Hebrew, it's the word chesed. It's a steadfast love. It is is a one track going one direction. Nothing's going to derail it. Love of God. And he appeals to that love for mercy because it is out of that chesed that God's mercy flows. Love is the attribute of God that, for lack of a better term, manifests itself in mercy. God loves to show mercy. Not only this, but he appeals to this mercy. And in verse 2, he prays for a multiplied washing. The ESV renders it, wash me thoroughly. Some will say wash me completely, or the, the Hebrew idiom there is multiple washings. Keep washing me from my iniquity. Keep washing me until I am clean. This goes back to the idea is that this is a deep, deep stain that it, it's difficult to remove. Anybody ever seen the TV commercials with the white carpets and the cleaner? And they always dump the, well, if you're a Baptist, it's grape juice, but for other people, it's wine, right? The, uh, some sort of dark juice. Baptist friends, I love you, I promise the uh, some sort of dark juice out there that gets uh, gets really deep into this carpet and the whole thing is there's no way to get that out once it's in there right if you spill something like ketchup blood grape juice wine whatever uh, onto a white garment it ain't coming out i'm sure i'm not the only one who's got an athletic family and uh, much to our chagrin dalton our soccer player has had a couple of seasons in which the club decided it was really, really smart to issue white jerseys and game shorts. He plays soccer, so he's not up and around. He's a goalkeeper, so he's diving around on the ground and everything like that. Uh, Yeah, same thing, right? If anybody, am I the only one that's had that happen? No, right? We get it, right? It's not coming out. It doesn't matter how hard we try. There is no, no matter how many washes, it's truly never gonna be clean. It's never gonna be the same. Uh, That it was. But in verse 2 here, don't miss this. What David is implying is he's the garment. We're the white garment that is stained. And no matter how many washes we try, we're never going to get it out. So we have to appeal beyond us in order to. Be made clean again. What a terrifying reality to be confronted with our sin and to realize what it does. There is no place we can go to avoid this. As verse 3 says, our sin, my sin is ever before me. Nothing we can do can justify ourselves. No place we can go to avoid it. We can only throw ourselves upon the chesed of God in heaven. I'm reminded of the parable in Luke chapter 18 uh, between the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee walked up and said, God, thank you that I'm not like this guy over here or that girl over there or a Gentile or any of that kind of stuff. I do everything I'm supposed to do. I do everything that the law says to the letter. And then, the, and then the publican over there can't even look up, beats his breast and just says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that one went home justified. The one who threw himself upon the mercy of God because only God can wash us clean. As we read further into verse 4, we get into what's kind of called the doctrine of sin. Now David says, against you and you only have I sinned. Hey, wait a second? That doesn't sound right. We know that Bathsheba is involved and we know that Uriah is involved and we know that David's commanders are involved in all this. How is it that David sinned against God and against God only as he said here? This might be parsing words, but we're going to say there's no dispute that David sinned toward Uriah. He sinned toward Uriah on at least three levels. Some will debate whether he, or the degree to which he sinned toward Bathsheba. That's a completely separate discussion for another day. It's, it's in the discussion. He sinned toward Uriah. He sinned towards his own men that he commanded to make sure that Uriah was killed. And he's confronted with all of this. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. How can this be? It's very, actually, quite simple. A human does not get to determine moral standards. A human does not get to be the arbiter of sin. We attempt that through municipal laws with varying degrees of effect. But if I go home, on the way home, and I run a red light, and I plow into somebody, the police come, are they going to tell me that I did something against the person that I crashed into? They're going to tell me that I did something against the law. In human terms, the laws of Annapolis, Anne Arundel County, Maryland, United States, that sets the standards by which we must behave. But we can't confuse that for a true, perfect moral law, because God is the one that sets that standard. The law of God is what dictates moral behavior, and because of this, any action that's contrary to God's law is a sin against God first. First those on the receiving end are secondary victims of our actions. Sins we commit may be toward someone else, but they are against God. And that is why David says what he says. Acknowledging this and admitting that God's judgment is just is the pivotal step in repentance. Once you get this right here, everything else, in a way, becomes much easier. It starts to fall into place. But when we recognize against God and against God only have we sinned, we are in a pretty good place to move forward with everything else. Verse 5 is uh, similarly kind of tough to unpack because David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, we're pretty biblically literate people here on the whole. So we may understand what David's saying here, but in the interest of being clear, he's not saying, I was conceived out of wedlock. That would be like the Western definition of being born in sin. No, he's not saying that. What he's really doing is he's underlying a core doctrine of the church. It's going to be one of those scary five-point words. It's called, it's the T. It's total, or what I call complete depravity, is what David is talking about here. This is a difficult and inconvenient truth to talk about in the church today uh, because we don't like to hear that, especially in our day, right? Wait, what? Me? Depraved? No way. I'm generally a good person, right? I do more good things than bad. I try to do the right things. I help ladies cross the street and I'll push their cart to the car and help them unload it from from the grocery store. I do all those types of things, right? Well, yes, but here is the problem. Sin is ingrained to the very fiber of our existence. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Eve. But our, all the way back to the beginning parents, because of their actions, sin is ingrained into the fiber of every human experience. It is passed down from one generation to the next without fail, Christ notwithstanding. That goes without saying, but just in case. So if we have, we'll do a little thought exercise here. If we think we're generally good people and you know, we, we do more good things than bad and everything like that, I want to preface this by saying, first off, sin, if I can use like a cosmological Analogy here. Sin is like a black hole. Anybody familiar with black holes and how they work in space? Right? They exist and then they just expand and grow and they eat up like everything around it. And they're just continually just whatever it can pull and and suck into it. It does. It only takes one to continue to grow and to expand. Sin in that sense. One sin is like a black hole on your life. So, if you have that one sin, we can talk about that being the depth of sin in and of itself. But I have another question for you. Where did this come from? Parents. I'm looking at my two over here a little bit. Did you teach your children how to sin? Okay, now parents of the parents... Did you teach your kids how to sin? Mom, don't answer that. (laughs) Right? It wasn't our parents. In a lot of cases, quite the opposite, right? My parents, you know, I grew up in in a Christian home. My parents both loved the Lord and taught us to love the Lord. They did everything to try to keep us from sinning. Didn't work. If my parents were here, they they would be shouting amen right now. We worked it out on our own. From a very young age. And the reason for that is because it comes to us naturally. Because it is woven into the very fabric of our humanity. Unfortunately for us, that leaves us in a very helpless state. And if we read this and we say, hey, this is David. This is the man after God's own heart that wrote this psalm. And he's in this spot. What chance do we have? We need help. We need more than help. We need rescue. Now, if that were the entirety of the psalm and we were done there, that would be the most depressing words that were ever written. Good talk, guys. Enjoy lunch. Check check out the NASCAR race, whatever. Eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. Thanks be to God that that's five verses out of 19. Because we are not left only with the reality of the depth and the misery of our sin, but the Holy Spirit points David to the solution, and through David beckons us to do the same. Verse 6 is parallel to verse 5. I was brought forth in iniquity. Verses, you delight in truth. In sin did my mother conceive me, versus you teach me wisdom. It's flipped on its head here Verse 5 reinforces that sin is the problem. Verse 6 puts God as the solution to that problem. He delights in truth. He teaches sinners wisdom that only comes from Him. This is the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. I was, I'm, in, I'm in my very last Greek class in seminary out of five. Yay! Then I get to take Hebrew. But that's another story for another day. The... Uh, it's much harder, but pray for me. The, um, I'm translating Romans. and Last night I was translating chapter 5, and I was reading verses 6 through 8 in Greek and pulling it out, and it was really interesting that, it's, that, that Paul sets it up. You know, for, for, so, for, for a person that someone thinks would be good, they might, be, they might think about laying their life down for them. If they know for sure that there's someone who's just then they might even be willing to commit to dying for them and to go through with it. Verse 8, that everybody remembers. But we weren't just. We weren't good. We were sinners. And Christ died for us. What love, what mercy, what delight from God to rescue people who understand this. From here, David starts asking for a whole lot of things from God. Uh, And he's asking, each of these is asking God to impute something upon the sinner. So we'll make that clear. God is the actor in all of these supplications that David's going to make for the rest of the psalm. David, by extension mankind, we are the recipients of that action. God gives it to us. Now, let's be clear, these are not asks to escape the consequences of his actions. That's not in there. We do know that David prayed for the infant child who was condemned to die as a result of his actions. He prayed up until that child died, but that wasn't the priority of David's relationship with God. Public disgrace, which God promised, also came through Absalom. David was not spared from these consequences, but it did not change his posture. And similarly, as sinners, we must not be preoccupied with our circumstances. Everything happens for a reason. Sometimes that reason is we make bad choices, right? Every choice we make, good or evil, has consequences, and we must be prepared to face those. But at the same time, our chief concern is this here forgive me. Forgive me from my sin. Now, David's going to talk about hyssop here, and I'll move quickly in the interest of time, but we'll try to pull some things out, because this is, this is something that it's not used by accident here. Hyssop is a mint kind of, of uh, tree or plant that was very common in the ancient, ancient Near East. It had many medicinal and cleansing qualities, and it's used a lot in Scripture, It's used in Leviticus 14 in two separate instances about purification. One is for mold in the house. One is for leprosy, that the hyssop was designed to be used to to cleanse. It was also used to uh, paint the doorposts at Passover in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 22. It was a hyssop branch that they used. Third, John 19, 28 through 30. When Jesus cries out on the cross, I thirst, right before he's about to give up his spirit, they, put him a, they give him a sponge and they deliver it to him on a hyssop branch. So there is some cleansing thematically, uh, use of hyssop in Scripture. It's not here by accident. David asks for familial feelings in verses 8 and 9. Joy and gladness are things that we get when we're around family, when we're around loved ones, right? That's, that's the most intimate, deepest feelings that we can have. And he's seeking here, he's seeking the words of God, the assurance of his sin being forgiven, but also looking forward to that time of glad tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Broken bones, let let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Not a literal statement. Much in the poetry is not literal. This is not literal. God did not come down and break David's bones that we know of. But it's a figurative statement of his brokenness towards sin. Shook might be the word today, uh, or maybe more than that. But he's distressed to the point of breaking. Still in that, he is seeking comfort and assurance that God will forgive. He is not seeking assurance that God is just going to look the other way while David keeps doing what he's doing, right? There are lots of people that look for that, God, you accept me. You love me just the way I am. A more precise statement might be God loves you despite the way you are. I know he loves me despite the way I am. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. When we are born sinners, we might say we can't help it. devil made me do it. I was born this way. Well, yeah. 1 Corinthians 6 says a little bit about that whole list of things, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you were renewed and you were redeemed. So we are born into sin, but that is precisely why we must be born again. Verses 10 through 12. This is a common song. Most of us know this. We can read this up there. We we can sing it. But it's all God's action and it's all man's reception. You can see up here the verbs, the object, and what's going on in different colors. Create in me a clean heart. Renew within me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. Take from me not your Holy Spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. All actions of God, all things asked by the penitent sinner for God to do in his life. All of these actions are brought by God to those who are keenly, keenly aware of their need. If we look in the New Testament, John chapter 9 when Jesus heals the man born blind and he encounters the Pharisees, this exchange happens. If you had said you were blind, you would be forgiven, but because you say you see, your sin remains. All they had to do was acknowledge their need and they would have been forgiven, but they couldn't do it. This forgiveness and redemption And regeneration and imputation of grace and righteousness brings us to the restoration from sin. This is the final segment in this psalm. David says, Create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me, etc., etc. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Is David cutting a deal here? David doesn't have much to offer. To quote Jonathan Edwards, I think it is, he's not bringing anything to the table to the salvation equation other than the sin that made it necessary. Right? Same goes for any one of us. It's not a conditional statement. But it is a logical outflow of what God has done. Because David is forgiven, he can tell everyone about the greatness of God. Because his heart and his lips are open, he can share that truth with others. Because of his confession from sin and his forgiveness from sin, David can teach others about the gravity of sin and the greatness of the one who forgives. And the very same principles go to each one of us who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Just as the born sinner can't help it, the redeemed sinner can't help it. Acts 4.20, Peter and John are preaching in the temple. They get called before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin says, don't preach in that name anymore because they're bothered by the very name of Jesus. And they turn around and say, well, I mean, whether we should obey God or you, I mean, you guys can be the judge, but we can't help but speak the things that we've seen and heard. We cannot help but tell people about what God has done for us and in our lives. It's just... Natural with the new man. No amount of doing is going to accomplish that. It's all the grace of God given to us. If it were possible, David could have just offered a sacrifice and called it good. But he said, you don't delight in sacrifice. If you did, I'd do it. But you don't. Because the sacrificial system was a picture of what was to come. It wasn't sufficient in and of itself. He knew that. The point was to point them to, A, how violent and messy and bloody sin is. And to point them toward the God who could really deliver them. Because a bull, a lamb, a dove is never going to do it. It's never going to accomplish it. The point was to give them the proper posture towards God, which is a broken spirit and a broken heart. The type of sacrifice someone receive, God receives is someone who throws himself or herself upon God's ed. Someone who is broken. Over their sin, someone who understands the depth and the misery of their sin, and someone who recognizes that the solution to sin doesn't come from within, but comes from outside themselves. It's not in here. I can never be good enough. The last part here seems to fall in a little interestingly because it starts to talk about Zion and Jerusalem. And for that reason, because it seems like such a big pivot, some people think that this is uh, either cause to say David didn't write the psalm, which if he didn't, then you've got an issue with the person that edited Psalm 51 and said David wrote it. I'll go with that, thank you. But that it could be, this last bit could be an insertion by someone later, maybe Isaiah in light of the exile, um, or one of the prophets. Um, However... I think David's just looking forward. There's reason to see this. It fits with the rest of the passage because he's talking about restoration on the whole. He's moving from personal application to corporate application. As the king of Israel, he is to some degree an intermediary for the people before God. And so that fits. We have a distinction between accepted and undesired sacrifices, which would say even if the temple is rebuilt and everything like that 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 Isaiah would be talking about, that still doesn't do it. It doesn't answer the uh, delineation between these. But what I really think this is talking about in reading this and understanding this is, A, David's looking forward to the temple because the temple hasn't been built yet. This happened in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and we have in 2 Samuel 7 and 8, God promising that the temple would be built by one of David's uh, descendants and the messianic prophecy that comes in there. That's what David's looking toward. David is looking towards a preparation. uh, This is a means of preparing God's people for what is to come. First, temple, and then Messiah. And so he's forward looking to the culmination, the fulfillment, the fullness of Israel and of the line of David just as God promised. He is saying, forgive me, uphold the people and bring about that which you have promised. May we all pray those words. From the position of sin to the position of forgiveness to the position of telling the world what God has done for us and looking forward to him doing the thing that he promised that he would do. And we'll apply the word very quickly before we move to, uh, to the table. Just a couple of questions here to think about how we would, can apply this to our lives. Question number one do I realize the depth and pervasiveness of sin in my life? Now, I know in applying the word, we're not supposed to ask yes or no questions, so I'm going to follow up with that. If not, please talk with one of the elders afterwards. This is the most important conversation you'll ever have. I promise. It is the most important conversation you'll ever have. If you do recognize the depth and pervasiveness of sin in your life. Have you confessed that before God? Have you asked him for mercy and for forgiveness and for restoration? And then secondly, in what ways do I recognize the need for God's cleansing in my life? And in what ways do I recognize the greatness of God in cleansing me from my sin? If that's the only thing that he ever did, thank goodness that's not the only thing that he ever did because I enjoy all the blessings too. But if he had forgiven our sin, that would have been good enough. But God delights in blessing his people. And so as we come to this table uh, of repentance and forgiveness, I'm going to invite you guys to um, pull the packets if you've got them. If you don't have them, then there are some in the back. We'll take the bread um, together and then we'll take the cup together and get everything there. But as we do this, I want us to just take a moment and reflect on this psalm and really think uh, and consider ourselves as we approach the table uh, today that... God didn't have to give this to us. But he delights in sinners coming to repentance. And he extends that to all freely. Now, you do not have to be a member of Bayridge Christian Church to participate at the table this morning. The only thing we clarify is that you, you do need to be a believer. You do need to be... Uh, One who recognizes your sin, recognizes the solution to sin, comes from outside yourself and forgiveness and mercy and grace. And the power to live rightly comes from God to average people like you and me, freely. You must receive that because by taking this meal, you are proclaiming that you are a sinner in need of mercy And that there is no other place to which you can turn to receive it. For what I received from the Lord, I now pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup... Is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You may prepare the bread. Father God, we come before you, sinners, in need of your mercy. But your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we confess that we have fallen short of your glory, and against you and you only have we sinned. But because of your great love for your people, you sent Christ, your Son, as a demonstration of mercy, offering forgiveness through his once-for-all sacrifice for sin. As we remember this sacrifice, we ask that you give us clean hearts and right spirits anew. Brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, broken for you, take and eat. Lord Jesus, as the psalmist wrote, we are people seeking joy and gladness. And we remember that when you came, your angels proclaimed glad tidings of great joy, which extended to all people. Yet you, Lord, came not to be served, not to rule, but to save sinners. This is the glad tidings of great joy, that by your blood we might be washed clean, and the joy of salvation might be given to us. Give us that joy anew this morning, as we partake of your sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Holy Spirit please receive our prayers of thanksgiving, joy and gladness and confession. Thank you for revealing the depth of our sin to us and for guiding us to the ultimate source of joy and gladness. We ask that you continue to point us back to the Father's has said. Pour yourself out upon your people, Spirit of God, that though we have sinned and will sin, we might not remain in it and dwell outside the camp of your people, but be washed continually in the waters of forgiveness. Empower us to teach your ways, to sing aloud of your righteousness, and to declare your praise for the glory of God, in the name of the Son, Jesus. Amen. Stand, brothers and sisters, and receive this benediction from Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Brothers and sisters, go forth knowing you are forgiven and you are blessed. And be a blessing to others.